Hi, everyone. I'm Cheryl Rose, and this is Maybe, a podcast about the messy reality of working for social innovation. Stories about uncertainty and risk, about holding big questions and not always knowing the answers, about having honest conversations and trying to act in very new ways. My own work has been all about supporting people working in that kind of complexity, people with a passion for big change. And here's something that's true about work like that. Every so often, something happens that stops you in your tracks. A reality check. And it can be when you're least expecting it. I had one of those moments recently. Me, along with a couple of hundred other people in downtown Toronto, at a conference about social innovation in Canada. Really, it was meant to be a reunion for many in the field, as well as a welcoming space for newcomers, and I know that there were real efforts to genuinely increase diverse participation. I also know that the majority of people came to be inspired and encouraged. Many, myself included, were looking for some kind of affirmation that we were doing some important good work in the world. But one group of young people couldn't have disagreed more. People were lulled out of this false sense of a sense of that we're doing enough Um, and that created a rupture because there is this idea that we're doing a lot and we're doing a lot of work and we're doing the best that we can and then to be met with accountability from the community saying that actually you aren't that unsettles people in a way that they're not prepared to be unsettled and that, to me, I think is the decentering of people's experiences. There's an accountability to yourself that you're actually faced with, and I think that that's what's probably most scary for people. That's Jessica Bolduc. She leads the 4Rs Youth Movement. 4Rs stands for Respect, Reciprocity, Reconciliation, and Relevance. Jess works with others to bring diverse Indigenous and non-Indigenous youth together and supports them to work for positive change on the topics that matter most to them. And a group of them were invited to this conference that I mentioned to bring a program called the Seed Savers. What that meant is that they participated and were offered some time at the end of the event to share what about the conference had really stood out for them. They were asked to talk about their impressions and reflections, to speak from their own points of view about what they'd felt and seen and heard about the social innovation field. And they did. I sat in the audience watching the seed savers take turns speaking and thought, what's going on? They were saying things that I found so hard to hear. You're not showing up for us. What about murdered women at the bottom of rivers? What about no drinking water in our communities? Don't talk to us about hope. Social innovation, it's colonialism with a smile. I went from being frozen in my chair with my eyes locked on them to silently bowing my head, not wanting eye contact with anyone. My heart was racing, my stomach knotted, my hands clenched, and I was thinking frantically, why is this happening right now? This is not how the conference is supposed to end. Who let this happen and why is no one stopping it? I was upset. The whole thing caught me off guard. I began to feel so personally criticized, hurt, discouraged and angry. Honestly, in that moment, I was furious. And at the same time, horribly sad, because the problems that they were talking about were heartbreaking. And if we, if I was part of the problem, then I was ashamed. I just wanted to leave. I wanted out of that room so badly. I had no idea what to think or what to do. And I wasn't used to that. I didn't like it. I wanted out. And I left quickly as soon as it ended. 
But over the course of the next week or so, I couldn't help but keep returning to the words of the seed savers, trying to acknowledge them, trying to understand them, but also to deal with all my own conflicting reactions. One part of me kept telling myself they didn't say anything but the truth. But another part of me was still completely caught up in my own questions. Did they have to say it in that way? Did they have to say it in that place to me and to all those people? How could anything good come from that? I don't know. I don't know. I needed to accept that I did not know the answers. I didn't even know if I was asking the right questions. And some other people at the conference had their own reactions. My body was vibrating with emotion. Um, I, I, think, I think there were some tears that came down my, my face. And it wasn't like I was sad. It's just the emotion was just flowing through me because I was able to receive it. An interesting battle that I was playing with was, do I want to help uh, take down the clubhouse or do I want to join the clubhouse? Oh, I can help. I don't even know how I'm harming. It's just, I don't know. I'm so confused. As I've said, I didn't know either. The one and only thing I finally figured out was that I needed to ask Jessica if she and I could connect. We heard Jessica earlier. Remember, she supported the Seed Savers throughout the conference, and she encouraged them to speak honestly to the crowd. It took me about three weeks to feel brave and humble enough to write to her and ask if we could talk together about what had happened at that conference with the Seed Savers. Jessica agreed to talk, and we ended up recording our conversation right after the Colton Bushy verdict in which a white man was acquitted of all charges after he shot and killed a young Indigenous man on a farm in Saskatchewan. I'm not going to dive into the details of that, but it did shape the tone of my chat with Jess. It was on our minds and weighing on our hearts when we talked together. How are you today? Um, I'm doing okay, I suppose. Yeah, I'm doing okay. I want to thank you for taking some time to come online and talk with me about this um, uh, this topic that we've been going back and forth on now for a couple of months. So um, we're thinking back to the SPARK conference that happened in Toronto and the seed savers that were there as a part of program out of four R's. What happened at the conference that led up to the kind of closing reflections that the seed savers wanted to share at the end? I think that for, for some coming into like a, a conference that's talking about social innovation and, and systems change, that there was a hope that the level of understanding and awareness of engaging in these conversations respectfully with Indigenous and people of colour would be there. Um, and in coming into this conference, I think that they experienced some of the same kinds of conversations that at times were marinated in racism or paternalism or also the perpetuation of this idea that social innovators are practitioners and that there's this divide between people who actually are doing social innovation work in their communities and if you're not able to access that language then you can't possibly be a social innovation practitioner. I think that there was a hope for more inclusion actually like just like and inclusion doesn't mean just inviting people. Like inclusion and belonging actually take work. So you were creating a space that your primary goal really was to create the space and allow the seed savers, those who wanted to say something to the other participants that they had you know, been interacting with over a few days, that they could say what they really wanted to say. 
and I was there. So, I mean, I think that they spoke very honestly about some of the disappointment that they had. I don't know if you could tell what was happening for people as they listened, but did you have a sense of how people were reacting to what they heard or, you know, how it was being received? What, what did you see happen in that auditorium or feel or just know was probably happening in that auditorium um, as the Seed Savers spoke? What was happening was like a decentering of the conference participants. What um, do you mean by that? Like, what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, I think that that means pushing people a little bit off balance and out of their comfort zone. Um, I think that there probably was an expectation that, you know, the quote unquote youth would share back something that was in service of feeling good about this conference, um, which is usually about, which is usually what kinds of happens at these sort of things. Right. Um, and what did happen was, um, just an expression of, of, of truth and expression of, um, uh, to me, I think the accountability piece is really important. Indigenous young people, and I'll speak from that perspective as being an Indigenous young person, we have an accountability to community and, and for the actions and things that we do. Um, more so because not only do we care deeply about these things because it is our community, but also that because life is on the line. Um, and, and I think that what, like what, what is, what is perplexing about the social innovation space at times is that who and what are you innovating? Like, what are you actually innovating for? And where are the people that are actually impacted by this thing? And so when you create a situation where young people who possibly are impacted by the systems change that's happening from these practitioners, and they're saying, well, actually, this isn't the way that I would like for this to move forward, or this is, isn't the way that I am seeing you being in solidarity with my challenges or my, my topics, as, as Jenna would say, um, in my community, the people get unsent and unsettled because it it's, um, makes them rethink the way that they do good. Yeah. And um, it makes them very uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People were lulled out of this false sense of, yeah, a sense of that we're doing enough. And that created a rupture because there is this idea that we're doing a lot and we're doing a lot of work and, and, you know, we're, we're doing the best that we can. And then to be met with accountability from the community saying that actually you aren't, that unsettles people in a way that they're not prepared to um, be unsettled. It was about creating an opportunity for, for these young people to be, um, saying the things that they would like to be said and just being heard. Not because people wanted necessarily to hear them, but because there was some power and control in having that time uh, when we had it. Um, and so our perspectives, our experiences weren't challenged. They weren't tried to um, be made invisible or to be dissected or analyzed. They were just what they were. And that should be enough for people, actually. What was and what is most frustrating about that whole thing was the feedback that we got from some people was that it's not that we didn't agree with what you said, it's how you said it. And what's challenging about that, I think, is that there is such a divide between a feeling of discomfort and fear that is grounded in ego 
and a feeling of discomfort and fear that is grounded in the possibility that you may lose your life or a young person or a person in your community might lose your life. And so to ask someone whose experiences of the latter to just share their story in a little different way, because that makes me uncomfortable, is actually doing a disservice to social innovation and to this reconciliation movement that we're really trying to be putting forward. If what closes us off as Canadians is to feel discomfort because somebody is telling us a truth that we're not ready to handle, how can we possibly deal with all of the systemic justices that exist here that are actually causing young people to die in our communities? And after the decision of, of, of the Colton Bushi case this past weekend, it really makes me question, is reconciliation even possible? And that's why we're passionate about this, because not only do we see the world in systems, we live in them every day and we challenge them every day. We've been doing that for 150 years since colonization has happened. So to suggest that we don't have a perception on that or, or the work that it's going to be taking to dismantle these systems um, is unfair and is also patronizing. But the fact is, is that we actually need people to help us. And that's what's frustrating about, I think, the conference was to sort of come into a space that talks about system change, but to realize, I don't know that people are actually understanding what the kind of help that's needed. And so, yes, it's an invitation to be uncomfortable because that is like the that's least- That's what it's gonna take. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The least that could be done. But I can hear, you know, you say it's an invitation into feeling uncomfortable. So it sounds to me like you feel like that's actually a very important first step. That's a doorway into a new ways that we might be able to work together. Why is there an invitation into the uncomfortable? Why is that important for people to accept that invitation and not turn away from it? I think that because there's a lot of knowledge that exists within those emotions, um, and that it's actually a privilege for people to be able to decide that that's not what they want to do. That's not what they want to feel. Um, and that's not a privilege that's afforded to everyone. What that discomfort that lies within your body has the potential to do is to, to unlock the underlying reasons why that makes you uncomfortable. And, and then there's actually a pathway forward from that. But when we talk about privilege, not only does it connect to like economic privileges and other, other kinds of, of um, status and, and um, uh, like class privilege and all of these different things, but there's actually within that, there, there's a privilege of being able to just ignore those things and to never change the way that you do good, I guess, in the world. Um, and so you can choose to actually find transformation in yourself and who you are as an individual um, or you can ignore that altogether and put the blame on the way that someone delivered that message as being the reason why you're not going to act. There's an accountability to yourself that you're actually faced with. And I think that that's what's probably most scary for people. And until people actually address that, I don't know how we'll be able to be accountable to community because like that's probably some of the biggest work that a lot of us need to do um, to become allies in the fight for justice. This conversation with Jessica was beginning to open me up to the idea that discomfort could be an invitation, an invitation for real change to happen. Then why do we fight it so hard? You know, I didn't really have an answer for that. So a few days later, 
over lunch with my friend and colleague Julian Norris, I asked him what he thought about, well, let's call it the usual reaction to discomfort that can show up when we're working with others for change. The kind of discomfort that I think you're talking about is the kind where you realize at some deep level, if this thing that is making me uncomfortable is true, it probably means everything about my life has to change. Yeah. Uh, as or the world as I know it is going to be turned upside down yeah. in some way. And and so in some ways maybe the discomfort is the echo of that awareness. Uh, but it has a surface discomfort. So you could say there's a kind of a primary discomfort, which is here's this person who's uh, in some way triggered my anger or my longing or some strong thing in me or my fear um, and I'm experiencing that as the discomfort but actually what it's doing is it's kind of waking up a secondary discomfort or a secondary feeling that is this feeling that everything has to change the world has to be turned upside down and I'm terrified to go into that space Hmm. So maybe discomfort, deep discomfort in our minds, our hearts, and even felt in our bodies actually signals the promise of new possibilities. But what must it have been like for Jessica to witness so many people in that moment at the conference refuse to accept discomfort as anything but flat out wrong? To watch most people turn away from her and the young seed savers and the realities that they were trying to draw our attention to. I'm just wondering how it feels for you to see people um, focus on their own discomfort without understanding that it's an, actually an opportunity. It means we're on the edge of maybe something new. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking back to that conference, I'm wondering, you know, right after that, for you as someone that may or may not have felt part of the field, but certainly many of us feel that you're part of that field, you know, how, how was that for you? I mean, I see myself in the social innovation field. There's tools that exist within the social innovation sector, um, as are there tools that exist within our own communities and our own worldviews that we can be using to build something different together. And so that is what I think is possible. What is challenging is the application of these tools within to not necessarily build something new, but to just perhaps make over what already exists using the tools of social innovation. And that's what's the most scariest thing for me is, is that we're actually just recreating systems of oppression masked in jargon of social innovation. And that's, I think, what, what Jenna had shared at the end of the conference, which was social innovation is just colonization with a smile. That's the shadow side of social innovation is, is, is that it's like almost this like sort of sexy sector for people um, to engage with because it's got a lot of potential and there's all sorts of different thinking that has gone into this space for, for decades. Um, and there's a lot of value to offer there. Um, it's, it, it, it's a challenge when the intentions or the applications of, of those tools is for to fix something that needs to die rather than build something new. Having the seed savers there gave me courage to say things that I probably never would have because I always fear for the consequences to my organization, to me as an individual who's, who's in these networks, my access or not to things. 
which is very superficial. And so it's like, that's a thought that I've let go of long ago, but like, those are real sort of um, impacts of saying things that, you know, people don't really want you to say. It's like something that someone said, I think it was Sarah, so I just have to pull it up, but it's something that she said about like saying her truths and what it meant for her to say and her truth. Sarah is one of the seed savers. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sarah said, yeah. Speaking to the group at the end, um, I knew that certain things had to be said. I just really wanted to do it in a good way. It was kind of last minute. Afterwards, I felt a distinct feeling of total discomfort in the room. It was interesting because I really felt like the majority of the audience didn't get us and didn't like it. There are a few people that came up to me and spoke. Mostly I approach people. There is definitely a lot of discomfort in that feeling of not being liked. I actually really enjoy that though, in a way. I said something that mattered. If you don't like me, that's okay because I can stand behind what I say. Um, and I, like to me, there's like so, so much in there. Like when you have to speak in front of a, a, a group that you know is not gonna welcome what you have to say. Yeah. because of the cues that that you've gotten through experiencing the conference with 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 these people um but you say it anyway because that's that community accountability right it's like there's like such a deep level of ancestral accountability and uh yeah i wouldn't change a thing i i thought i was so blessed to have met some of these young people who i've known for a couple of years now but like actually spending time to have an experience like this together really created important bonds and going into conference spaces in particular as indigenous people black people people of color um, sometimes you're like the only voice there um, and your experiences quickly get sort of pushed to the margins um, or you don't have a lot of support of people backing you and so this was an experiment and and what if we like created that um, so that we could actually say the things that needed to be said because to not would be an injustice to the sector of social innovation, I think. Knowing that there was that you know, deep discomfort that a lot of people felt and have been telling you about and that you saw written all over everybody's faces and you must feel that it's an opportunity. What would you say to people that felt that discomfort? I've been exploring the connection to body, to trauma, to wisdom that exists in your body and your emotions are attached to those sort of things, right? I'm calling on people to get more attached to their emotions so that they can be better and do better. And then on the opposite end of that spectrum, and this is that divide that is there, is, is that like, like we're losing hope in our communities because how, like, is that even going to matter right now? You know, like, it's like, uh, like this whole reconciliation conversation to me, I am like, I have zero words for it after what happened on Friday. It's like, how could we possibly think that we can move forward in reconciliation? The systems are so against Indigenous people. And so if people really want to help, they need to understand the ways in which that those systems murder Indigenous people. And so your first step is to sort of deal with your emotions, and that's important. But then learn and educate yourself because it's it's like we're putting so much energy in trying to support non-indigenous people to help us better but it's like we need to be in our community so much more than ever right now like we need each other and so we need allies to do their work and so it seems almost anti 
antithetical is that the word to be having this conversation with you because it's like I shouldn't have to tell people this I guess you know I shouldn't have to ask you I shouldn't have to beg you do something simple and just understand and and empathize with with the situation that we're faced in what is challenging for me is is that not everyone but but from what i understand the people who were so uncomfortable and hurt by what was said is is that they were too busy thinking about themselves instead of thinking about the abundance of the knowledge that was being shared with them and and that's something that we need to get over it's like there was so much richness that was shared by the seed savers in that final share back um it's it's unfortunate to me that the people stopped listening because of an emotional reaction that they had. And so if we could recreate that situation where people were able to transcend that, I think that we would have a lot of perspective on where do we go from here. And do you have even one thought or two about if we recreated, what does it take to transcend the usual reaction? What does it take, do you think, to transcend that? Humility. Yeah, probably just a big old slice of humble pie. <laughs> I don't know. Like humility is such a beautiful value and a beautiful teaching. And I think that it's probably one that exists in many cultures. But it's like, if we could listen with humility, um, then we can take ourselves out of, out of it. You know, we can take our ego out of, out of what we're experiencing. And it's something that I always think about, like, oof, I didn't like the way that I handled myself in that situation. Um, and the thing that I needed to use and practice more was humility. So for me, these past few months have been a huge time of introspection and learning. I've actually come to feel grateful for the push to understand in new ways just what those uncomfortable reactions might be all about. And I do feel humility growing in me about what I don't know and that I need to really own that and make my choices about what I will know and be able to bear um, and what, would, what will it mean if somebody um, from an Indigenous community from a First Nation asks me to show up and also that I shouldn't wait to be asked. What is the cost of doing nothing for only your fear of, of being wrong or doing something harmful, which is also important and, and as, a, as an awareness that I'm appreciative of in, in people who are allies is this idea of there's a possibility to, to perpetuate harm. But that's why relationships are so important because you can have those community accountabilities and those check-ins with people uh, and not blindly crusading towards some sort of possible future that isn't even the future that Indigenous people want. So let's just be mindful to to find those ways to check in with one another. Um, because there's work that needs to be done in Indigenous communities for Indigenous communities only. Um, and as there's work to be done in settler communities and settler spaces to help you with readiness, and as you said, in, in such a really wonderful way, to be prepared for, for to listen in a different way. Um, and then there's times where we need to come together because there's new insights that we can share with one another that will help us to be able to unlock the real future that I think we're trying to, to, to drive towards. So yeah, unless we could just completely start over from scratch, 
<laughs> that's where we've got to go. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess we can only begin from where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jessica, so much. To be honest, I'm still holding lots of questions about this story and wonder if it could have played out differently. But if anything had been different, would we still be talking about it? I guess what I'm most sure about is that if you're working for big change in the world, you need to pay attention to this zone of discomfort. I'm learning that discomfort can be anticipated. It should sometimes be expected. And maybe most importantly, that as individuals or as groups of people working for change, we need to prepare better for dealing with discomfort. Because it's so much more than just feeling emotionally and physically uncomfortable. Discomfort can be a signal that we're on the edge between the old and the new. I want to express my gratitude to Jessica Bulduk personally for her generosity. She lives in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and her family is from the Batchwana First Nation. Jess's organization, the 4Rs Youth Movement, along with YSI Collective and Catalyst X, partnered to bring the Seed Savers program to the Spark Conference. My thanks also to each of the individual Seed Savers for setting this thoughtful dialogue in motion, especially to Sarah Nelson for permission to share her comments. Sarah lives in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and her family is from Kuchiching First Nation and Laxul First Nation. And I'm grateful to all of you for listening. I hope that you'll be part of keeping this conversation going. Thanks to those at the conference who let us share some of their reactions. Molly Siegel is my podcast coach and co-producer, and the BAMP Centre practicum team, especially Esther Gad, provided post-production support. The Getting to Maybe Social Innovation Residency at the BAMP Centre and all the people who've been involved in it are the inspiration for this podcast series. Jessica Bolduc is a past participant in the program. I want to acknowledge that BAMP is located on Treaty 7 territory, the traditional lands of the Blackfoot, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina nations. I hope that you'll be able to join me next time as I dive into another story about the complexities of working for social innovation. Another story about getting closer to maybe. <laughs>